following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, uh, it's the season of Lent, and we, we have a lot going on. And so I'm going to be going through a few things here this morning, a couple of programming notes, and then a, then a sermon as well. But we've been doing these... Um, spiritual practices together. Do you know about this yet? If you've been here the past two weeks, you should know about it. Um, Last week we handed out these cards, and the week before we had one that was a different uh, spiritual practice. Last week's practice was fasting, and our daily meditation was Isaiah 58. And we have these cards. We'll have them each week. They're also available as a PDF on our website. If you want to get them on your own, you can go through the season of Lent with your faith community. And uh, rather than doing one kind of community fast for the whole season of Lent, we decided to do different spiritual practices each week together. And um, we're bringing in the cards afterwards, because on the back they have the space for thoughts and reflections, and we're hanging them up on this display in the, uh, in the window bay here. And so if you brought your card back with you this week from, the, the pre- from this past week of doing fasting and, and meditating on Isaiah 58, you can go and hang that up on the clothespins there at any point in the service today, um, including whenever I get boring. Uh, preaching and that kind of thing, but certainly during communion or whenever, if, before you leave, whatever you'd like to do, I would encourage you to bring these back and then to spend some time reading those, looking through them. They're really meant to be uh, a way of edifying each other and encouraging each other by what's shared there. Um, and it's, unless you're really good at recognizing handwriting, it's totally anonymous. So um, that's, a, that's something I'd like you to, to think about doing. And I would like to give you this week's discipline cards. These uh, discipline cards sounds really mean, doesn't it? Um, could I have one person from each section of seating come and, and, and pass these out? Um, this week's discipline is simplicity, and the daily meditation is from the psalm that Anna read at the start of the service today, Psalm 63. So you can be um, focusing on that. And again, the idea is that you do the spiritual practice once during the week. In this case, it's a very specific practice about how to live more simply. Um, and uh, you use the meditation daily. So there's, a, there's two rhythms that happen during this, this endeavor. The, the discipline happens once during the week, and the meditation happens daily. Um, and take comfort and joy knowing that your whole community of faith is doing this together with you. While those are going around, let me... Um, let me give you another kind of programming note about what's, what's happening here at Artisan. Um, we have another fairly full sanctuary again today, and this has been the pattern for some time now. So first of all, I want to say thank you to those who sit up in the uncomfortable seats to make room for our visitors who might be more comfortable a little farther away. Um, and the same thing, you're, you're doing the same thing in the parking lot, and you're parking on the street. If you're a regular, I really appreciate that. Um, just remind you to be considerate of our neighbors and leave them space when they're trying to back out of their driveway. It can be tricky if there's cars right there on the edge. So, and it's, it's a fairly busy street even on Sundays, so be, just be considerate of our neighbors when we do that. But on a bigger level, we are, we are um, excited to have this problem of, of starting to overflow the sanctuary again. It's something that happens at different times of the year, and as you know, most of you were, were doing an expansion to the sanctuary this spring and summer to, to help us with that. Um, but in the meantime, we're, we're dealing with it in other ways, and um, the way that we're going to deal with it 
in a couple of weeks is that we're going to, for a, for a temporary period of time, we're going to have an additional service at Artisan. And um, the idea is that with that is that those of you who are regulars and committed people, um, just as you can sit in a place that makes room for others, you can actually attend a different service that would make room for others to come to this one. Um, and so we are almost at a decision point as to when to hold this second service. It's either going to be Saturdays at 5 p.m. or Sundays at 5 p.m. And we're, we're trying to make that decision. And so just as a, in, by way of a very brief um, bit of feedback that you could help us with a great deal, I would like to know, those of you who are committed to Artisan, would you be willing to attend this second service for a period of 10 weeks? It's just 10 weeks between... Um, the 17th, which is two weeks from today, and May 19th, which is the weekend before Memorial Day, when about, about time when college lets out and the holiday season, the summer travel season starts, things will get a little bit more comfortable here. And then, of course, by fall, we'll have the extra space. So it's a period of just 10 weeks. I'm, I'm asking you to make um, what might be, for some of you, a little bit of a sacrifice of convenience um, for the sake of hospitality. And so, if you are saying, yes, I would do that, as long as I'm uh, able logistically to make the, the time, what I need to know is, is which time would you be willing to do that in? Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you two questions. First, I'm going to ask you, would you be willing to come to a service at 5 p.m. on Saturdays for a period of 10 weeks starting on the 17th of March? And if the answer is yes, put your hand up and hold it and let me count it. <laughs> and then I'm going to ask you, would you be willing to, to do the same thing on for 10 weeks starting March 17th on Sundays at 5 p.m. And put your hand up if the answer is yes, even if it's also yes for Saturdays. I need to know the number in both cases. Does this make sense? Yes, thank you. Um, Both of the pastor's spouses right now are are (laughs) yelling at me. Um, (laughs) Now, these services will be identical for the most part. except for one significant difference, is that we are only doing children's ministry programming at the Sunday 10 a.m. service. That does not mean that children can't come to the, the 5 p.m. on Saturday or Sunday, whatever it is. It just means that we don't have special program for them um, like we do Sunday mornings. So that could play into your decision. And it, it, for those of you who don't have an obligation to children in that way, um, I would lean on you just even a little bit more because we really need to pick up that slack. Here's the problem. If we don't have enough people in the room for that additional service, it's going to feel very flat and dead, and it's actually not going to help the, the problem of our overflowing anyway. Does that make sense? We really need to achieve what sociologists might call a critical mass of people so that we can feel like we're having some momentum in this other thing, all right? Um, so I'm going to ask you about Saturday, starting on March, it would be the 16th, and I'm going to ask you about Sundays, starting on March 17th, and if you can do both, please raise your hand both times. And if you can't do either, that is totally okay. But if you can do one or the other, please, do, um, please be willing to be inconvenienced for the this, this sake of hospitality for this period of time, okay? Is that clear to everybody what we're going to do? Okay, so would you be willing to come for a period of 10 weeks starting on March 16th on Saturdays at 5 p.m.? Um, if so, let me see your hands. Okay. Um,
Okay, I have that as 38. Somebody remember 38. <laughs> now, um, even if you just raise your hand for that, um, would you be willing to come on Sundays at 5 p.m. starting March 17th for a period of 10 weeks? Um, if so, please raise your hand. Okay, I have that at about 47. Um, now, this is not a democracy. <laughs> um, but that is a helpful bit of feedback to you. Um, it really does matter that we have a significant number of people who would be willing to do that. So, um, I'm, a, I'm a P on the Myers-Briggs scale, so I don't like to make decisions right away. I'm going to wait a little while on that one, but... Yeah, let's hear it for indecision. But I guess it looks like the community is leading, leading Sunday. All right. Thank you for that. And I appreciate that. It's, I know it's not uh, all that spiritually enlightening, probably. but <laughs> Titled today's message, Unless You Repent. <laughs> this is probably the most ominous sermon title I've, I've made in uh, months. But it comes straight from the words of our Lord Jesus. And um, so I make no apologies for it. Just know that if you're visiting today, I'm usually not this mean. There's, um, we're, we're going through, during Lent, we're going through these, the uh, readings assigned from the Revised Common Lectionary, which is just a collection of biblical texts that gives us an Old Testament passage and a Psalm passage and a Gospel passage and, a, and an Epistle passage every week, and I hope that you're using these devotionally as well, um, but we're, we're making an effort to read all the texts every week, even if we don't, you know, if, even if I don't exposit them, in other words, preach on them and explain them all to you, but the two New Testament texts today are both um, kind of strange and a little bit, like, like the title, a little bit ominous, and so I want to read them together and uh, see what we can do to figure out what they're saying. And uh, so the first one I'd like to read is the, is the epistle passage. The epistle is just a fancy Bible word for letter. Um, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He had this back and forth exchange with them. Um, he wrote to them in response to some of the problems that were happening there in this first one, and then they wrote back to him, and he wrote again in the book called Second Corinthians. And uh, there probably was some correspondence that happened before this as well. So sometimes when you read the book of, books of Corinthians, it's a little bit tricky to, to figure out what's going on. Um, but uh, I want to approach this particular text in a way that's different from what I usually do. Normally I'd read the whole thing and then we'd talk about it a little bit. I want to take this verse by verse. Um, it won't take as long as it sounds. Um, or maybe just a few verses at a time. Because with this passage, doing them all at once would be sort of overwhelming, okay? So if you'd like to follow along, I would really encourage you to do that. Uh, you can use the red Bibles, the page numbers listed on the screen. If you have your own Bibles, I trust you've found it by now. Um, and as I usually say, if you don't have your own Bible, you're welcome to, to keep the one that you, that you find here today. It's our gift to you. So let's read the first four verses together. Paul says... I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, 
And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Okay, we're going to pause here for a minute, because this is already um, potentially immensely confusing here. What, what Paul is doing is writing to this church of uh, Christians who have a Jewish heritage, and he's, he's connecting their Jewish heritage... Uh, that's what he's talking about, their ancestors, to the sacraments of Christian religion. Um, so when he's, he's, he's saying, he's talking about how the, uh, the Israelites, when they were uh, redeemed from slavery in Egypt, they, they went into the wilderness and Moses led them around. And there's this cloud that, that led them, that was God's presence. So that's the cloud. And they passed through the Red Sea on their way out. So that's the sea that, that he's talking about. But then he's calling it, he's saying that they're baptized into the, into Moses, with Moses into the cloud and in the sea. Kind of this weird way of saying it. But he's trying to connect their heritage with, with um, the Christian sacrament of baptism. And then what he's talking about is he's saying that they all ate the same spiritual food, which was, do you remember the story of the manna from heaven? how the people had no food and they complained and God provided them this, this heavenly bread that would fall down six days a week and they could collect it and they would eat it. And they, they, they said, what is that? And the Hebrew for that is manna. And so it's called manna. Um, and so they all ate this same food. And then when they were thirsty, um, God told Moses to strike this rock and the water would come out of the rock and they had water to drink. And, and he's saying, our ancestors uh, were baptized in this cloud and in the sea. And they ate these spiritual foods, the manna and the water from the rock, and the rock was Christ. He's making this direct connection, saying that Christ was present in all of this time. And he's also doing this in a way that uses language that would be um, kind of connectional for the people in Corinth, who were not unlike the people of today in that they were sort of vaguely spiritual in some ways. And so talking about spiritual food and spiritual drink, typically the sacraments are not referred to that way um, in the New Testament. We sometimes talk about them that way because it connects with our culture sort of like it did with the Corinthian culture. So he's making this connection both with their, their historical ancestry and the stories of their history and with the spiritual culture in the, the city where they lived. And he's setting them up for what will come in the next verse. Verse 5. Let's look at this together. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as an example for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. Uh Uh-oh. Here we were talking about this beautiful spirituality and this wonderful uh, analogous connection between the, the events of the wandering in the wilderness and the sacraments of our Christian faith. And now Paul has gone, turned on a dime and started talking about how God struck these people down. Uh, one of the saints of the church, St. Chrysostom, said of this passage, why does Paul say these things? He was pointing out that just as the Israelites got no benefit from the great gift which they enjoyed, so the Corinthian Christians would get nothing out of baptism or Holy Communion unless they went on and manifested a life worthy of that grace. The Israelites, you see, assumed that God's providence was their birthright. They could be forgiven. 
for that, given how the whole thing came about. We've talked about that in the past few weeks already. And so these Christian people were sort of having that same attitude, just, just grafted into this new Christian faith. That this, this safety, this security, is our birthright, and it doesn't quite matter how we act. Let's go on to verse 6. Paul says to the Corinthians, Do not become idolaters, as some of them did, as it is written... Quote, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. End quote. Now, I would contend that the first part of that verse is Paul's uh, topic sentence for the passage. Do you remember in uh, English class when you had to write an essay, and they were teaching you how paragraphs worked? You had to have a topic sentence, and in, in each, the first sentence of each paragraph was supposed to be the topic sentence, you know? What I did on my summer vacation, <laughs> you know, uh, or whatever it was. I think this is the topic sentence. Do not become idolaters as some of them did. And I would contend, and I hope by the end of this, this brief little uh, interaction with this passage, you will, you will agree with me that, that all of what is about to follow has to do with that sentence. His topic is idolatry. Uh, and the reason that I set this up this way is because, because what, is, what follows in this passage... Uh, is usually preached in a way that has nothing to do with idolatry. And I don't think that that's appropriate necessarily to an, a proper understanding of the text. Verses 7 through 11 go on to say this. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. And do not complain as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them to serve as an example, and they were written down to instruct us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So here Paul is making more allusions to the history uh, of the Israelites and certain events that happened. Um, for example, in, in Numbers 25, there's a, there's a story of how the Israelite people started to engage in these idolatrous sex feasts with Moabite women and it was understood to, that, that the, the plague that came after that was judgment for that idolatrous and inappropriate um, interaction. And there's, this, there's a reference there to the events in the wilderness that you might remember if you, if you, if you know the deep cuts here where there, was, uh, there were poisonous serpents that were sent. To, uh, to teach the Israelites one thing or another, and then they, they remember they had, had fashioned this bronze serpent up on a pole, and anybody who was bitten by the snakes could look at the, the pole and be healed. And, and um, you know, we Christians understand that to be a prefiguring of Christ on the cross. And there was constant complaining. I mean, if you read the story of the Israelites wandering, it was just complain, complain, complain. So Paul says that these things happen to them to serve as a warning to us on whom the ends of the ages have come. Now that was a couple millennia ago and we're still here so we, maybe at some time we could talk about what that, that phrase might mean. Um, and here's verse 12. 
So if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. What does that verse mean? Is that uh, just a standalone, disconnected warning? That thing about standing and falling? Well, go back and look at verse 6. Do not become idolaters as some of them did, as it is written. Topic sentence, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Now, that's a quotation from something else, and we don't need to go into that. It's not really the point today. But, do you see how verse 6 connects with verse 12? Standing and sitting and, and standing and falling. Does that make sense? I think that what happens in verse, verses 7 through 11 is, uh, is in parentheses, basically. The thought that Paul is putting across here goes from verse 6 to verse 12, and verses 7 through 11 are kind of this, uh, it's not that they don't matter, it's not that we shouldn't pay attention to them, but it's, it, they also shouldn't be lifted out of this topic, which is about idolatry. And Paul says, warning, don't do it, don't be like them. Now, our versions of idolatry might very well be quite different from the Israelites' version of idolatry. doesn't mean it doesn't have something to do with sexuality, though. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have something to do with, with testing the Lord in this kind of haughty way. It doesn't mean that it has nothing to do with complaining. So don't hear me saying that either. But this whole thread here is about idolatry, if you ask me. And then, actually, as a bonus, verse 14 is not in our our, uh, passage today. But what does verse 14 say? I'll find it here. I didn't write it down. What's that? Therefore. Oh, it's like a reverse of our rule, right? What's the rule? What is the therefore, therefore? I always say that. Usually it's when we read a passage that starts with therefore, and we have to go back and look at the one that comes before it. But if you're reading a passage and you stop right before therefore, eh -eh. same problem in reverse. Therefore what? Somebody read it out loud. I can't find it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? It's to connect this whole concept to, to idol worship. And for us, idol worship almost always is probably um, not about physical idols, but sometimes it might be. And then he's got that nice verse, which I didn't read in there, verse 13, where he says the nice things about God's not going to test you more than you can handle, and that, that's good to know too. Um, but I want to go on to the gospel reading today. Uh, it's from Luke 13, 1 through 9, and uh, I'm going to read this one in two sections, and this one... This one connects in an interesting kind of way to the 1 Corinthians one. So let me read the first five verses to you first. This is, um, something that somebody comes and says to Jesus and he responds to it. So here, here it goes. At that very time, there were, some, there were some present who told him, told Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He said to them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. 
But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Now, there are references to two events in this passage that we kind of have to make a little bit of sense of before the rest of it can, can land with us, I think. Um, the thing about the Galileans' blood being mixed with their sacrifices and the thing about the Tower of Siloam falling and killing 18 people. Usually when this kind of thing happens, you can find a reference to the events somewhere else in Scripture um, or in some other recorded history. You can do a little bit of research and find out what's going on. But in this case, uh, that is not so. All we have for, to understand what this is is the text that's right in front of us. So I would just say it seems like this is what happened. Pilate, who was the Roman ruler in the Galilean region, um, you, he comes into the story later, as you know. Um, but he had apparently slaughtered some Galilean Jews who were at the temple worshiping. And the very colorful language that the people used to tell Jesus about this is that their blood mingled with their sacrifices. And then, apparently, a tower had fallen in Siloam, which um, we did a story from the book of John several weeks ago about the, uh, the, the lame man who was sitting by the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. This is the same area. But the tower apparently has fallen and killed eight people, 18 people. But what I'm more interested in in this passage is not the, not the historicity of those events and how we might confirm them somewhere else, but how Jesus explains them to the people who bring it up to them or bring, bring them up to him. He does something which is so common for the type of teaching that he does. He holds up their way of looking at the world and their way of uh, explaining why things happen, and then he blows it apart. <laughs> that is so Jesus. <laughs> he says to them, essentially, do you think that these horrible things happen to people in order to punish them? For being extra sinful? No, I tell you. In both cases, he is unequivocal. No, that is not how the world works. Boy, oh boy, could we stand a little bit more of that nowadays. Every time an act of terrorism or a horrible accident or a natural disaster happens, some pastor or preacher is on TV saying it happened because of such and such a sin that... So-and-so committed. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about the clowns at Westboro Baptist, because at, at least with them, we could very easily say they are so far outside the mainstream of Christianity that we don't even have to... I mean, they're annoying, but we don't have to listen to what they say. No, these are high-profile, mainstream Christian pastors who say things like this. People with lots of actual influence who connect these horrifying events to some particular sin that they're irritated about. And Jesus refutes this assumption, this deterministic retribution theology out of hand. Both cases. Do you think that this happened because they were worse offenders? No, I tell you. But what he does not do, and what I will not do, is disconnect sin from its ultimate consequence. In both examples, he warns the people, unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. He's almost saying that 
your incorrect assumptions about how the universe works and how justice is meted out, it almost doesn't matter because the same result is coming unless you repent. Even though there isn't this this absurd one-to-one relationship that doing a certain sin triggers a certain punishment immediately and a specific kind of death. Even though that's not the way God works, Jesus says, there is a consequence between sin and destruction. Or connection between sin and destruction. The consequence is destruction. And I would be forsaking my duty if I didn't give this part of the teaching uh, equal ground with the other part. Jesus is very clear and direct about this, as is the rest of the New Testament, by the way. There's a very famous verse that many of us had to memorize that says, the wages of sin is death. So he's very clear and direct, but then he he says it all again in in a softer, more figurative language kind of way. He tells a parable, and many of us prefer parables. Um, And here I'd like to connect all that we've talked about with with this parable. Verses 6 through 9 of this passage goes on to say this. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? The gardener replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What a lovely little story. This, this parable is both reassuring and sobering at the same time. Aren't the, isn't the, Jesus' use of these stories is just incredible. Just incredible. On one hand, the story tells us we've been given a reprieve. <laughs> the, the tree that is our, our life and our faith and our soul is not going to be cut down this instant. Although based on the previous three years of experience, it probably deserves that. That is reassuring. There is time. We can cultivate this a little bit more and fertilize it, spiritually speaking. There's still time to bear fruit, to be useful. sobering, though, at the same time, because it's not an infinite reprieve. You don't have eh, as long as you want. So now is your opportunity. Whether your sin is one of idolatry and all the different forms it might take, whether it has to do with sex or improper worship of other gods or an attitude and a spirit of, of, of complaining and mistrust or of demanding things of God. All that stuff which 
Paul seems to include in this treatise on idolatry. Whatever your sin might be, now is your opportunity to fertilize your soul, to take advantage of the time that you've been given. It occurred to me as I was looking at this that the, the, the Eastern Christians early on in our history uh, as Christians, the, those of us, not those of us, but those who, uh, who were in the eastern portion of the church had a little different way of looking at, at sin than the western Christians did, which kind of is the tradition that we ended up with by way of uh, the Protestant Reformation and the, the Roman Catholic Church. Our friends who are Orthodox are, are spiritual descendants of the eastern church, and they, they, think, they look at sin a different way, and the, the, the metaphor that is used very often is a plant, and I love this, that, that if you imagine ourselves as a, as a sort of a frail um, sapling or a little flower um, that's been ripped out of the soil, it's, it's headed for death. <laughs> but there is an opportunity in the grace of God to be replanted. And as I was thinking about this parable, I was reminded of that Eastern way of thinking about sin and about redemption. It's reassuring, is it not, to know that, uh, that there is another year. <laughs> Why not literally be 365 days, but there is another year. There is another season. There is an opportunity to, to take root again, to blossom and to flourish, to bear fruit. Um, I would offer you a couple of ways to respond to this. If, uh, if you are a person who has very recently, maybe even just now, made a, uh, a faith commitment, an, an act of repentance, of turning away from your old life and stepping into a new one, um, the appropriate Christian response to that is actually baptism. We talked about the sacrament stuff in the, in the First Corinthians passage. We're having a baptism service on the 14th of April. We have a few people who want to be baptized and um, if you would like to be, please contact me. We can talk about how that would work, and, and that would be a very appropriate thing to do. For, for many of us, this kind of thing is not about that first time turning to faith, but of a, remind, a reminder that, that we have strayed, um, that we constantly need God's grace, that we need to remember the vows we made in baptism, that we need to take hold of the grace that was offered to us in baptism. And, and for those of us who are already Christians, that grace and that reminder is present at the Lord's table. And so that's why we celebrate communion together, together every week uh, after we hear, hear from the Word of God. And so um, regardless of your uh, church membership or denominational affiliation or any of those things, if you're a, a Christian who's seeking to follow after Jesus, who's seeking to receive from him the the sustaining grace that you need to repent every day. The table will be open for you. We're going to sing a couple of more songs together before we go, and I invite you to come and receive the bread and the wine or the juice. Remembering your baptism, remembering Christ's sacrifice for you, and receiving that food for your souls, that spiritual food, as Paul said. I'd like to close with a prayer of St. Patrick. It's almost St. Patrick's Day. May the strength of God pilot us. May the power of God preserve us.
May the wisdom of God instruct us. May the hand of God protect us. May the way of God direct us. May the shield of God defend us. May the host of God guard against the snares of evil and the temptations of the world. May Christ be with us, Christ before us, Christ in us, Christ over us. May your salvation, O Lord, be always ours this day and forevermore. Amen. Our table is open. Let's continue to worship God together. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.